Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There has been a change of government. It began two years ago when the House of Representatives became democratic by a decisive majority. It has now been completed. The Senate about to assemble will also be democratic. The offices of President and Vice President have been put into the hands of Democrats. What does the change mean? It means much more than the mere success of a party. The success of a party means little except when the nation is using that party for a large and definite purpose. No one can mistake the purpose for which the nation now seeks to use the Democratic Party. It seeks to use it to interpret a change in its own plans and point of view. Nowhere else in the world have noblemen and women exhibited in more striking forms the beauty and the energy of sympathy and helpfulness and counsel in their efforts to rectify wrong alleviate suffering, and set the weak in the way of strength and hope. We have built up, moreover, a great system of government, which has stood through a long age as in many respects a model for those who seek to set liberty upon foundations that will endure against fortuitous change, against storm and accident. But the evil has come with the good, and much fine gold has been corroded. We have been proud of our industrial achievements, but we have not hitherto stopped thoughtfully enough to count the human cost, the cost of lives snuffed out, of energies overtaxed and broken, the fearful physical and spiritual cost to the men and women and children upon whom the dead weight and burden of it all has fallen pitilessly the years through. With the great government went many deep secret things, which we too long delayed to look into and scrutinize with candid, fearless eyes. The great government we loved has too often been made use of for private and selfish purposes, and those who used it had forgotten the people. At last a vision has been vouchsafed us of our life as a whole. We see the bad with the good, the debased and decadent, with the sound and vital. With this vision, we approach new affairs. Our duty is to cleanse, to reconsider, to restore, to correct the evil without impairing the good, to purify and humanize every process of our common life without weakening or sentimentalizing it. 
There has been something crude and heartless and unfeeling in our haste to succeed and be great. Our thought has been, let every man look out for himself, let every generation look out for itself, while we reared giant machinery, which made it impossible that any but those who stood at the levers of control should have a chance to look out for themselves. We have now come to the sober second thought. The scales of heedlessness have fallen from our eyes. We have made up our minds to square every process of our national life again with the standards we so proudly set up at the beginning and have always carried in our hearts. Our work is a work of restoration. We have itemized with some degree of particularity the things that ought to be altered, and here are some of the chief items. A tariff which cuts us off from our proper part in the commerce of the world violates the just principles of taxation and makes the government a facile instrument in the hands of private interests. A banking and currency system based upon the necessity of the government to sell its bonds 50 years ago and perfectly adapted to concentrating cash and restricting credits. An industrial system which... Take it on all its sides, financial as well as administrative, holds capital in leading strings, restricts the liberties and limits of the opportunities of labor, and exploits without renewing or conserving the natural resources of the country. We have studied, as perhaps no other nation has, the most effective means of production. But we have not studied cost or economy as we should, either as organizers of industry, as statesmen, or as individuals. Nor have we studied and perfected the means by which government may be put at the service of humanity, in safeguarding the health of the nation, the health of its men and its women and its children, as well as their rights in the struggle for existence. These are matters of justice. There can be no equality of opportunity, the first real essential of justice in the body politic. If men and women and children be not shielded in their lives, their very vitality, from the consequences of great industrial and social processes which they cannot alter, control, or singly cope with. Society must see to it that it does not itself crush or weaken or damage its own constituent parts. The first duty of law is to keep sound the society it serves. Sanitary laws, pure food laws, and laws determining conditions of labor, which individuals are powerless to determine for themselves, are intimate parts of the very business of justice and legal efficiency. These are some of the things we ought to do, and not leave the others undone, the old-fashioned, never-to-be-neglected, fundamental safeguarding of property and of individual right. This is the high enterprise of the new day, to lift everything that concerns our life as a nation to the light that shines from the hearth-fire of every man's conscience and vision of the right. It is inconceivable that we should do this as partisans. It is inconceivable we should do it in ignorance of the facts as they are or in blind haste. We should restore, not destroy. We shall deal with our economic system as it is and as it may be modified, not as it might be if we had a clean sheet of paper to write upon. And step by step, we shall make it what it should be. Justice, and only justice, shall always be our motto. And yet it will be no cool process of mere science. The nation has been deeply stirred, stirred by a solemn passion, stirred by the knowledge of wrong, of ideals lost, of government, too often debauched and made an instrument of evil. 
The feelings with which we face this new age of right and opportunity sweep across our heartstrings like some air out of God's own presence, where justice and mercy are reconciled, and the judge and the brother are one. We know our task to be no mere task of politics, but a task which shall search us through and through, whether we be able to understand our time and the need of our people, whether we be indeed their spokesmen and interpreters, whether we have the pure heart to comprehend and the rectified will to choose our high course of action. This is not a day of triumph, it is a day of dedication. Here muster not the forces of party, but the forces of humanity. Men's hearts wait upon us. Men's lives hang in the balance. Men's hopes call upon us to say what we will do. Who shall live up to the great trust? Who dares fail to try? I summon all honest men, all patriotic, all forward-looking men, to my side. God helping me, I will not fail them, if they will but counsel and sustain me. Woodrow Wilson First Inaugural Address, March 4th, 1 everybody. I formally convey my presence. This is CJ, your Renaissance man in this new dark age, and yes, finally I am back with another installment in the series about the guy we all love to hate, Woodrow Wilson. And if you can recall way back to the last time I put out an episode on Wilson, we got him elected president. And so now this episode is going to be about him assuming the office, you know, getting sworn in, choosing his cabinet, and then also some of his early policy successes, because particularly in his first year, as had been the case when he was governor of New Jersey, he got a lot done. Now, whether it was good, bad, or some mixture of the two is in the eye of the beholder and depends very much on one's own worldview and values. And for me personally, and I suspect for probably the vast majority of people who are regular listeners to this show, most, if not all, of what Wilson does as president, just like with most, if not all, of what he did as governor of New Jersey, is pretty objectionable to one degree or another. Even if you're not an anarchist, if you just put a somewhat high value on the idea of personal liberty, and also if you care much at all about peace. There's not much to love about Woodrow Wilson as president. But anyway, I'll go ahead and cut the opening chatter there and we'll switch gears and begin to talk about Wilson's cabinet picks. Now, of course, he's president for two terms, a full eight years. And during that time, some of his cabinet members are replaced, sometimes multiple times. So I'm not going to go through, you know, all of his picks for his entire administration. I'm going to talk just about the initial ones. And then as the narrative unfolds in future episodes covering various aspects of Wilson's presidency get made, I'll mention, at least when it's really important, cases where one of his cabinet guys is replaced by somebody else. So anyway, our good friend Edward House would have huge influence on most of Wilson's cabinet nominations, especially his initial ones. 
Now, partly, this is because House was much more knowledgeable than Wilson at the time about Democratic Party politicians and operatives nationwide. And so House had more knowledge about who might be a good pick for which job and whom it might be helpful to give a high-level job to for political reasons, even if that person is not particularly qualified for that job. Also, in part, House's influence on the cabinet picks reflected Wilson's personal distaste and impatience with patronage and things like that. It was pretty much the same when he'd been governor of New Jersey for those couple of years. When he had turned over a lot of the job of patronage and the nomination for key positions and handing out jobs to his personal secretary, Joseph Tumulty. And really, House was important for Wilson's personnel throughout his presidency, even going back to the campaign itself, because as a side note, it had been House who had provided Wilson with a bodyguard during the campaign, because back in 1912, the Secret Service didn't protect presidential candidates unless and until they actually, you know, became president. And the guy that House provided for Wilson to, you know, serve as his bodyguard during the campaign was actually a former Texas Ranger named Bill McDonald, if you're curious. Now, as I think I may have mentioned back in the last Wilson episode that I released, if we can remember back that far, um, after Wilson's election, but before he left for his vacation in Bermuda that he took during the period he was president-elect, Wilson had had a meeting with House at House's New York apartment that lasted for about an hour and a half, and that was primarily about cabinet picks. The two men continued to communicate about cabinet picks from then until Wilson actually took office, sometimes in writing, which of course leaves some interesting insights, kind of a paper trail, into the thought processes of the two men as they filled the cabinet. The only initial nomination over which House really didn't have much say was for Secretary of State. Wilson chose that one, though it should be mentioned that House did concur with Wilson's choice, at least at the time, as the politically smart move. Longtime populist Democratic leader William Jennings Bryan of Nebraska seems like a strange choice for Secretary of State of all things. However, I should point out that in the years leading up to Woodrow Wilson's election, Bryan had actually traveled internationally very extensively, and he had become very interested in international affairs, particularly from kind of a pacifistic Christian perspective aimed at reducing international conflict. Bryan also was an anti-imperialist, which put him in an opposite camp on that issue from the last several secretaries of state before him who had been very staunch imperialists like John Hay and Elihu Root. Bryan's global travels in the years prior to Wilson's election had taken him to places as far-flung as Mexico, Europe, Japan, China, the Philippines, India, a good chunk of the Middle East, and also Russia, where Bryan apparently spoke with Leo Tolstoy, the Christian pacifist, for 12 hours on the general topics of Christian anarchism and Christian pacifism. Historian H.W. Brands writes, quote, For years, Bryan had taken an active, if idiosyncratic, interest in foreign affairs, opposing imperialism and war and advocating arbitration of international disputes. Many in both parties considered him a lamb among wolves on matters diplomatic. But because Wilson didn't think foreign affairs would play an important role in his administration, 
and because what little he knew about the world at large inclined him to hope that Bryan's biblically-inspired pacifism could become a blueprint for international relations, he gave the Nebraskan the premier cabinet appointment as Secretary of State. End quote. Now, apparently there had not been any sort of explicit quid pro quo with Bryan prior to the election to get his support for Wilson's campaign. It's true that Bryan's eventual endorsement of Wilson during the 1912 Democratic National Convention was possibly the most important factor that put Wilson over the top. And I think it's true that Wilson and some of his people had certainly led Bryan to believe that he'd have some sort of very high up position within a Wilson administration. But I think they kept it a little vague while the campaign was ongoing. However, soon after getting back from his post-election Bermuda vacation, Wilson had a four-hour-long meeting with Bryan in Trenton, New Jersey, at which Wilson offered Bryan the position of Secretary of State, and Bryan accepted. The position of Secretary of State has always been seen as the most prestigious job in a presidential cabinet other than the president himself. So, at first, it might seem like Wilson giving the job to Brian is a sign that Wilson deeply respected Brian, but I think that's more the opposite of the reality. While Wilson and Brian had reached some amount of rapprochement leading up to Wilson's nomination, I think that Brian may have been more genuine in his fence-mending with Wilson than vice versa. I think that Wilson made Brian Secretary of State primarily, perhaps almost entirely, in order to appeal to Brian's constituency and keep them on board, because Brian's constituency, his following, was still a huge part of the Democratic Party as of 1912. And so making him Secretary of State is throwing a giant fig leaf to that faction within the party. And yet, from Wilson's perspective in kind of 1912-1913, he saw it as really giving Brian primarily a symbolic job because Wilson's priorities were pretty much entirely on domestic policy. And as Brand said, and as Wilson himself even said, he didn't expect at the start of his presidency that foreign affairs would be a big priority or a big factor in it. So he was basically, from his perspective at the time, giving Brian a job that Wilson thought would not end up mattering a whole lot, while simultaneously keeping Brian and his supporters appeased, and, you know, as part of the fold, keeping Brian inside the administration so that he would be less likely to ever become a critic of it from within the party. You may recall, as I think I previously mentioned in an older episode in this series, that Wilson had famously said to a friend not long after his election to the presidency that it would be an irony of fate if his administration ended up being consumed by foreign affairs. Now, that's not an exact quote, maybe, but it's very close. Top historians on Woodrow Wilson seem to generally believe that Wilson wasn't totally personally thrilled about bringing Bryan into the administration, but that he understood it as a political necessity in order to keep Bryan and his huge following within the Democratic Party fully on board with Wilson's presidency. The same thing is true of House. House seems not to have been a giant fan of Bryan, from what I can tell, but he was also a man always very attuned to political realities, and so he concurred with the choice of Bryan because he understood how important that was to keeping the Democratic Party as united as possible behind Wilson. By the way, despite having lost election to the presidency three times, in 1896, 1900, and 1908, 
Bryan retained a huge following in the Democratic Party as of 1912, especially in the West and Midwest, and to a lesser extent in some parts of the South. And it is a fact that Bryan had actually won more popular votes in each of his three losing presidential runs than Wilson had gotten in his successful 1912 campaign. And the reasons for this were, first, voter turnout in the U.S. elections began a continual decline for several decades after the turn of the century. So, by 1912, voter turnout was down significantly overall, especially when compared to what voter turnout had been for Bryan's first two runs for the presidency. But also, remember that while Wilson won the electoral vote pretty decisively in 1912, he had not won a majority of the popular vote. And he had only won a plurality of the popular vote because T.R.'s Bull Moose campaign had split the Republican vote. When he accepted the Secretary of State job, Bryan said that he had two policies that he wanted to implement in the State Department. The first was to try to get as many agreements as possible between the U.S. and other governments in the world in which the signatories would pledge to submit to arbitration of any disputes between them before resorting to war. The other policy priority was to stop serving alcohol at state dinners and events and serve grape juice instead. Wilson, while he wasn't a giant believer in those two policies, personally nonetheless did not really object to either, and he told Brian so. Brian then would weigh in with opinions on cabinet picks over the coming weeks and months before Wilson took office, although Wilson seems to have listened to him much less than he listened to House. And Wilson really only went along with Brian's recommendations and suggestions when they concurred with someone else that Wilson and House already were kind of leaning toward for that job anyway. For the position of Secretary of the Treasury, Wilson initially on his own initiative, but then with the encouragement of House once he brought it up, would choose William Gibbs McAdoo, whom you may recall had become a very important advisor and sidekick to Wilson during the campaign of 1912. Also, Wilson's daughter, Eleanor, had taken a fancy to McAdoo, and the two of them would soon be married during Wilson's second year in the White House. So, once that happens, Wilson's Treasury Secretary would also be his son-in-law. As I may have mentioned previously when I introduced McAdoo earlier on in this series, McAdoo was, like Wilson and like a lot of the people around Wilson, a transplanted Southerner who had spent much of his adult life in the North. McAdoo was a lawyer, I believe originally from Georgia, who had moved to New York City in the 1890s. He had a background of involvement in kind of transportation sorts of endeavors, and he had eventually become the president of the Hudson and Manhattan Railroad Company, from which position he got interested in politics and cultivated some connections with some important New York business interests as well. Arthur S. Link, who's generally considered the leading Wilson historian of the mid-20th century, described McAdoo as, quote, a prominent businessman, yet not identified with big business, a leading financier, yet not allied with Wall Street, end quote. Though Philip Birch, author of the very interesting multi-volume series Elites in American History, says that this description of McAdoo is a bit misleading. In fact, he says that this description of McAdoo 
quote, which is apparently based on his own dubious, if not self-serving claim, is simply incorrect. First, with regard to size, it is clear from published records that the Hudson and Manhattan Railroad Company was a big enterprise, with assets of over $120 million in 1912, which probably ranked it in the top 100 concerns in the country. Second, and even more important, a detailed analysis of the upper-level organizational structure of this interstate transit firm reveals that William G. McAdoo was, from the very outset, on close terms with various key Wall Street figures, particularly those associated with the House of Morgan, end quote. Birch then goes on to detail the top officers and directors of McAdoo's railroad firm, and he shows that a lot of them, including the two vice presidents, were very closely tied in to the House of Morgan. And Birch concludes, quote, Hence, contrary to what has been claimed, it would appear that McAdoo was basically an ambitious politico-economic figure who, until his entry into the cabinet, had been closely linked with the Morgan interests, end quote. For the position of Postmaster General, Wilson initially favored a North Carolina newspaper publisher named Josephus Daniels, who was a progressive Democrat. But Colonel House, along with Oscar Underwood, who then was the House Majority Leader and Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, convinced Wilson that Albert Burleson of Texas would be a better pick for the job. Burleson was an eight-term congressman generally considered to be a conservative Southern Democrat who nonetheless had been a huge Wilson supporter in the campaign, regardless of Wilson's progressivism, which should have been obvious to everybody by that point. Burleson, whose father had been a Confederate Army officer, would be one of the most racist people in Wilson's administration, and one of several who were often prodding Wilson to be even more racist in policy than Wilson might have otherwise been if he were left to his own devices, which, of course, was already pretty freaking racist. And as head of the USPS, Burleson would actually be the boss of more black employees than anyone else in America at the time. So, what a great job to fill with a person who was an ardent racist. Now, for Attorney General, Wilson's initial instinct was to select Louis Brandeis, but House tried to steer him away from Brandeis, and instead pushed James McReynolds of Tennessee. Now, House was generally positive on Brandeis overall as a legal mind, but he still recommended against him for Attorney General, and he wrote of Brandeis, quote, there comes to the surface now and then one of those curious Hebrew traits of mind that makes one hold something in reserve, end quote. Whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. William Jennings Bryan, by contrast, seems to have been much more positive on Brandeis for attorney general. Bryan seems to have seen Brandeis as a sincere reformer who was really trying to work for the interests of regular people. But Wilson would ultimately listen more to House instead and go with McReynolds. McReynolds was a lawyer from Nashville who had already been assistant attorney general for several years during TR's presidency. Because he had been involved in some antitrust work, McReynolds was generally perceived as a progressive, though based on some of his later activities, this seems to have been a mistaken perception. Because apparently, despite being a bit of a trust buster, McReynolds was actually pretty conservative overall. 
Philip Birch says that that, plus McReynolds' very difficult personality, caused him to not get on very well in the cabinet. McReynolds would not last very long in the job, and Wilson would end up having two more attorneys general over the course of his presidency. In 1914, Wilson would get rid of McReynolds as attorney general by appointing him to the Supreme Court, where he would eventually be a very strong critic of FDR's New Deal programs in the 30s. McReynolds was also quite racist and anti-Semitic, and among other things, he personally blacklisted Louis Brandeis when Brandeis was also appointed to the court a little later. And he refused to even talk to Brandeis for years, and he also strongly opposed Herbert Hoover's nomination of another Jewish justice, Benjamin Cardozo, in the early 30s. For Secretary of War, Wilson chose a New Jersey lawyer and politician named Lindley Miller Garrison, whom Wilson had come to know from his time as New Jersey's governor. Garrison would hold the post until 1916, though supposedly he never really got along very well with Wilson and the rest of the administration. Part of the reason, apparently, was that Garrison was a really aggressive interventionist in foreign policy, even more so than Wilson, which, as we'll see in a future episode, if not several, is saying a bit, as Wilson was actually pretty interventionist even before World War I. In 1916, Garrison would be replaced as Secretary of War by Newton Baker, who would hold that job through the remainder of the Wilson presidency, meaning that Baker would be Secretary of War for the entirety of U.S. participation in World War I. Baker had been born in West Virginia, but eventually moved to Ohio, where he became a lawyer and a progressive Democratic politician, eventually becoming mayor of Cleveland. By the way, Baker had many years ago earned a bachelor's degree from Johns Hopkins University, where Wilson had earlier earned his PhD, so no doubt that experience had an impact in shaping Baker's progressivism, since, as we've mentioned in previous episodes in this series, Hopkins' social science department was a hotbed of progressivism at the time. And in fact, Baker had attended some of Woodrow Wilson's lectures at Hopkins when Wilson taught there kind of part-time while working at Princeton. Though I'm not sure how well Wilson actually remembered Baker from that experience. For the post of Secretary of the Navy, Wilson ultimately chose Josephus Daniels, the guy I just mentioned a little while ago whom Brian had initially suggested for Postmaster General. Daniels had absolutely zero prior experience with maritime matters of any sort, civilian or military. Philip Birch, in Elites in American History, writes of Daniels, quote, Unlike many cabinet members, Daniels had no major corporate or family ties and was often at odds with business interests in his home state. Although he reportedly was not an effective administrator, Daniels got along well with President Wilson and was consequently able to resist various devices or subtle efforts to remove him from high federal office, end quote. Daniels was from the Bryanite populist wing of the Democratic Party, so nominating him was another bone thrown to that faction. He was like so many people in this political milieu at the time, kind of a mixture of populist, progressive, and racist social conservative. McAdoo, by the way, though he was, I think, a bit more polished and sophisticated than Daniels, could also be put into that category. 
McAdoo was also a progressive who, like Josephus Daniels, supported alcohol prohibition. And when McAdoo ran for the Democratic Party's nomination for president in 1924, he got the Ku Klux Klan's endorsement, and while he didn't exactly, like, brag about it, he also did not repudiate it in any way. But anyway, back to Daniels. His newspaper in North Carolina had frequently printed very racist material. He was also a teetotaler and an advocate of alcohol prohibition. One of his major policy moves early on at the Navy Department prior to World War I was to issue an order in 1914 forbidding alcohol to be served or available or anything like that on all U.S. naval ships and facilities. You can just imagine how this must have gone over with most of the rank-and-file sailors. And in 1919, near the end of his tenure, he issued an order banning any work on the Sabbath in the U.S. Navy, other than in an absolute emergency. Daniels would be Wilson's only Secretary of the Navy, staying in the job all the way from 1913 to 1921. Later on in the 1930s, FDR would make him ambassador to Mexico. By the way, back when Daniels was Secretary of the Navy in Wilson's administration, he selected FDR, then a young man and a rising star in the Democratic Party to be Assistant Secretary of the Navy. A job that, I'll remind you, A, Teddy Roosevelt had also held early in his political career, and B, I'll remind you that it was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy who, at the time, was the guy in charge of overseeing the Office of Naval Intelligence, or ONI. So, FDR was overseeing ONI during the World War I era. And then several decades later, when he was president, Pearl Harbor would happen on his watch. Just saying. This guy who had been assistant secretary of the Navy during World War I, and among other things, had overseen ONI during that time, supposedly was completely taken by surprise by Pearl Harbor. And if you believe that, then I'm sure you think Epstein definitely did kill himself. For the job of Secretary of the Interior, Bryan initially recommended Newton Baker, the guy who eventually became Secretary of War and who at the time was Mayor of Cleveland. But Wilson ultimately went with a guy named Franklin Knight Lane instead. Now, of course, a few years later, in 1916, Wilson would bring in Newton Baker as Secretary of War, so Baker is going to end up being very important during U.S. intervention in World War I. Franklin Knight Lane was a Californian who had previously served on the Interstate Commerce Commission and who had run for governor of California unsuccessfully back in 1902. His nomination was basically throwing a bone to Westerners because the job of Secretary of the Interior is generally seen as having the most importance to the Western United States because that's where the bulk of the federal government's land is. You know, the various types of so-called public land, which basically means federal government. For Secretary of Agriculture, Wilson picked a guy named David F. Houston, who really came out of academia, having previously been a professor of political science before eventually holding such prestigious posts as Chancellor of Washington University in St. Louis and having served as the president of Texas A&M, as well as the president of the University of Texas. Houston seems to have basically been picked by House. Houston also had corporate ties, too. 
At various points in his career, he worked with the Rockefeller-funded General Education Board, as well as being a director in several Morgan-connected companies, such as AT&T, U.S. Steel, and the Mutual Life Insurance Company of New York. So Houston is definitely coming out of the more corporatist-connected wing of the party, rather than the Bryanite populist wing. As such, he was generally pretty conservative on agricultural policy, and he opposed any significant federal aid or intervention on behalf of farmers. Later on, Houston would become Secretary of the Treasury for basically Wilson's last year as president. For Secretary of Commerce, Wilson initially thought of Louis Brandeis again, but once again House pushed against that, as did Wilson's even wealthier longtime benefactor Cleveland Dodge. Wilson ultimately selected for Secretary of Commerce a guy named William C. Redfield, who was a politician and businessman of New York who seems to have been fairly obscure. He was kind of like a mid-sized businessman, though from 1905 until he went to Wilson's cabinet in 1913, he had been a trustee of the Equitable Life Assurance Society, which gave him a little bit of power elite cred and which probably was what put him on House's radar and earned him House's thumbs up. And for what was at the time the newest cabinet post, that being Secretary of Labor, Wilson nominated William B. Wilson, who was actually no relation to Woodrow, who was a Pennsylvania congressman and former secretary-treasurer of the United Mine Workers of America. On this pick, Wilson seems to, Woodrow Wilson, President Wilson, seems to have largely deferred to Samuel Gompers, who was the longtime president of the American Federation of Labor, AFL, which is generally considered a pretty moderate labor union. William B. Wilson would be the first former labor union official to be in a presidential cabinet. The remaining batch of important appointments at the start of a new administration are the ambassadorships particularly those to key countries that are important at the time. And the most important of all in the early 20th century was the post of ambassador to the UK, since at the time the British Empire was still the closest thing to a world superpower that existed. Wilson initially offered this job to Charles W. Eliot, who was the former president of Harvard. Actually, he was and still is to this day the longest-serving president in Harvard's history having held that job for a full 40 years, from 1869 through 1909. Elliot politely declined the ambassadorship, though, and then Wilson offered it to Richard Olney. Richard Olney had previously been Attorney General and Secretary of State under Grover Cleveland. Olney also declined. I'm not 100% sure why they both turned it down as of this recording, and I don't even know for sure if their reasons are clearly recorded anywhere in any historical documents, but I've seen suggestions that for both Elliot and Olney, their age was a major factor in declining the ambassadorship. Both of these men at the time, I think, were in their mid to late 70s. And believe it or not, there was a time in American history where people were not always okay with the idea of electing or appointing people to very high-level political offices who were closing in rapidly on 80 years old. And there was a time that men of that age, mid to late 70s, would even themselves decline important jobs and kind of gracefully retire by that age. 
unlike today, where apparently no one thinks it's a big problem that so many of our top leaders are over the age of 70. But anyway, after those two guys turned down the job, Wilson then offered the ambassadorship to the UK to Walter Hines Page, whom you may recall from previous episodes was a longtime friend and political supporter of Wilson. He was also a major bigwig in the world of book and newspaper publishing who, like Wilson, had been born in the South but spent much of his career in the North. In Page's case, of course, in the publishing capital of New York City. Now, looking over his resume, Page had a lot of power elite connections, including having served on the board of Rockefeller's General Education Board, which from there connected him to all sorts of members of the corporate elite of the time. In addition, Page was known to be a staunch Anglophile, so Wilson was appointing a strongly pro-British biased guy to be the U.S. ambassador to the U.K., which, of course, is going to matter a lot since World War I is going to break out in Europe during Wilson's second year in the White House. For ambassador to France, Wilson picked former Congressman William G. Sharp of Ohio, who, according to Philip Birch, was probably mostly chosen for political reasons and doesn't seem to have been too interesting of a character or to have too many interesting connections. The last really important ambassadorship at the time was ambassador to Germany. And for this, Wilson picked a guy named James W. Gerard, who had become a New York State Supreme Court justice, who was closely tied to the Tammany Hall wing of the New York Democratic Party, and who was also a major financial donor to the Democratic Party's campaigns. Gerard definitely had a lot of money and a lot of elite connections, including having married the daughter of one of the founders of the enormous Anaconda Copper Mining Company. He seems to have been largely selected as ambassador to Germany for political reasons, not because of any knowledge or expertise or experience in diplomacy in general or German-related matters in particular, and his nomination ended up not boding well for U.S.-German relations. Historians seem to agree that Gerard was just not a knowledgeable or skilled diplomat, and from what I know, at least as of this recording, during his time as ambassador to Germany from 1913 to 1917, Gerard's attitudes were pretty consistently pro-British and anti-German. So both America's ambassador to Britain and America's ambassador to Germany were strongly pro-British, anti-German. By the way, Wilson's vice president, Thomas Marshall, the former governor of Indiana, was a very typical U.S. VP in that he was basically a non-entity and really a footnote in the administration, which is how most vice presidents have been throughout American history. And unless I happen to come upon anything interesting or important about him while I continue to produce this series and always do more research as I go, I'd say that as of this recording, there are pretty good odds I might not ever mention him again, even if I end up making another eight or ten episodes on Wilson. From what I can tell, Wilson didn't like him much, so maybe that means Marshall was a decent guy? But I don't really know, and as of now, it just doesn't seem like there's much reason to dig into him at all. He doesn't seem to have had really much in the way of influence on the presidency of Wilson. But before we move on and start talking about, you know, Wilson getting sworn in and his early actions as president and all that sort of stuff, we need to talk a little bit about his so-called kitchen cabinet. Because the people who were the closest to Wilson for most of his presidency were not his cabinet heads. 
It was instead, like most presidential administrations, his quote-unquote kitchen cabinet, which, if you don't know that term, means people who are very close to the president, but who don't have actual cabinet positions in the administration. If you don't know, the term actually goes back to the presidency of Andrew Jackson, where his kind of closest friends and advisors were guys without formal cabinet jobs, and these guys tended to leave and enter the White House through the kitchen. And again, the truth is that in probably the majority and maybe even the overwhelming majority of presidential administrations in American history, these sorts of people tend to have more real pull with the president most of the time than those with formal cabinet spots, because those guys, you know, they're overseeing giant bureaucracies and they're dealing with all the busy work of overseeing, you know, the Postal Service or the Justice Department or whatever it is. And so, yeah, they're having meetings with the president and whatever, but they're not necessarily getting as much face time and having as much influence as other people who are just sort of, you know, informal advisors and secretaries and things. Now, of course, no surprise, Colonel House would remain Wilson's most important untitled political advisor and one of his closest friends for most of his presidency, until they have a falling out near the end. Scott Berg writes, quote, In access and influence, House outranked everybody in Wilson's cabinet, including the Secretary of State, end quote. And Berg also argues that, for practical purposes, House was the first national security advisor in American history, even though that position would not formally exist until 1947. Now, Wilson had actually offered House an official job in the administration if he wanted it, but House turned it down precisely because he understood that informal advisors, like we've already mentioned, tend to have more influence on presidents than cabinet members do. So, on the topic of an offer of an official post in the administration, House wrote, quote, I very much prefer being a freelance and to advise with him regarding matters in general, end quote. And he wrote that he preferred, quote, to have a roving commission to serve wherever and whenever possible, end quote. Even Arthur Link, who is generally considered the most respected kind of establishment historian of Woodrow Wilson in the 20th century, and who is very much the guy who kind of set the establishment's take on Wilson in a lot of ways, even Link portrayed House as not just an advisor to Wilson, but also as the primary go-between linking Wilson to the financial elites of America during Wilson's time as president. In this regard, House was performing basically the same role for Wilson's administration that J.P. Morgan partner George W. Perkins had performed during the administration of Teddy Roosevelt. Among House's many, many connections to the American financial power elites of the time were several years that he spent on the board of the Equitable Trust Company, which was then a major Wall Street financial firm. House even basically admitted that he was sort of using Woodrow Wilson. He once wrote, quote, My physical handicaps and my temperament make it necessary for me to work through other men. I was like a disembodied spirit seeking corporeal form. I found my opportunity in Woodrow Wilson. End quote. The next person who was super close and important to Wilson during his presidency was Joseph Tumulty whom you may recall had become Wilson's secretary while he was governor of New Jersey, 
though in practice Tumulty was always much more than that. He also functioned as a top political advisor and operative for Wilson in New Jersey as well. Wilson liked Tumulty so much that he brought him with him to the White House as his personal secretary, in which position he was also basically Wilson's chief of staff, even though that formal title and position didn't yet exist in American presidential administrations. White House Chief of Staff didn't become a formal title and position until the mid-20th century, though it was typical for a president's personal secretary to basically be that in practice. Even so, Wilson seems to have been closer to Tumulty than many presidents have been with their secretaries and later with their chiefs of staff. Often, Tumulty would also function as a top advisor and the kind of like top communications chief. For Wilson. Historian H.W. Brands goes even further and describes Tumulty as, quote, Chief of Staff, Director of Communications, National Security Advisor, and Counsel to the President, end quote. Another guy we haven't mentioned yet, but he'll come up when Wilson actually goes and, you know, gets inaugurated. Another guy who became super close to Wilson was a man named Kerry T. Grayson. Kerry T. Grayson was, at the time, a rear admiral in the U.S. Navy, and he was also a doctor. He was a Navy doctor. And he would become not only Wilson's personal physician throughout his presidency, he would also become one of the closest friends, confidants, and advisors to Wilson, right up there in many ways, with Tumulty and House. And I'll mention just a little bit later how Wilson met him and how they hit it off, and no doubt over the remainder of the Wilson series, he'll pop up multiple times. And one more guy I'll mention who, at least initially, was kind of like a kitchen cabinet member, although he didn't actually spend as much time in the White House and mostly corresponded with Wilson through letters, I believe, but who nonetheless was an important advisor to Wilson on many matters, was Louis Brandeis, who, of course, had already been very influential to Wilson in formulating his new freedom platform especially the aspects of it that dealt with the quote-unquote trust issue. Brandeis would be an important informal advisor to Wilson during his first few years as president, though, as you may already know, and I think I've kind of alluded to already, Wilson is going to nominate Brandeis to the Supreme Court in 1916. In particular, Wilson tended to turn to Brandeis for advice on matters relating to business and antitrust law, that sort of thing. So again, Brandeis was never as close to Wilson personally as House, Tumulty, or Grayson were, and he didn't spend nearly as much time face-to-face with Wilson as those guys did, so maybe he doesn't quite rank as kitchen cabinet, but nonetheless, he was an important informal advisor to Wilson prior to getting on the Supreme Court. So now let's talk a little bit about Wilson actually taking office and moving into the White House and all that kind of stuff. As the Wilsons were preparing to move to D.C. to the White House, the outgoing president, who 
of course, was William Howard Taft was, as usual for Taft, being a very, very magnanimous gentleman. And Taft really made an effort to be welcoming and to do everything he possibly could to help the Wilsons move. Taft even recommended certain White House staff be kept on whom he had found really, really helpful, including the guy who at the time was the head custodian and valet of the White House, Arthur Brooks, whom Taft praised very much for competence and efficiency, and whom Taft referred to as, quote, the most trustworthy colored man in the District of Columbia, end quote. In the lead-up to Wilson's nomination, Taft wrote to both Mr. and Mrs. Wilson with various bits of advice about kind of the nuts and bolts aspects of living in the White House and being president, including financial allowances, salary, all kinds of things. So, you know, I do have to say Taft always stands out as like just a real gentleman. A guy who was genuinely friendly and gregarious and all that. And this is why it particularly always pisses me off every time I read about like just how obnoxious Teddy Roosevelt was towards Taft, given the fact that, you know, whatever you think about Taft's politics and some of his stuff I like and some of it I don't, but he really comes through the historical record as just a decent guy. And so it does always rub me the wrong way that Taft got treated so badly by TR. But anyway. On March 1st, 1913, Wilson officially resigned from being governor of New Jersey. Two days later, the Wilsons left New Jersey for D.C., where they stayed at the Shoreham Hotel that night, as the inauguration would take place the following day. On the night before the inauguration, the Wilsons hung out a bit with the Tafts, and again, everything was very friendly, and the Tafts, again, were really bending over backwards to be helpful and welcoming and all that. And one of the people present at this meeting was Dr. Kerry Grayson, the guy I mentioned earlier who was a U.S. Navy doctor. At the time, he was 35 years old, and he was originally from Virginia, like Wilson. And near the end of the meeting between the Wilsons and the Tafts, Taft made sure to introduce Dr. Grayson to Wilson, saying, quote, Mr. Wilson, here is an excellent fellow that I hope you will get to know. I regret to say that he is a Democrat and a Virginian, but that's a matter that can't be helped, end quote. Obviously, you know, Taft just a little bit of friendly poking, knowing that Wilson is also a Virginian and a Democrat. So with Taft's recommendation and also given an incident I'll mention that happened after the inauguration, Wilson quickly took a liking to Dr. Grayson and kept him on as Taft had had him as the president's personal physician. And like I said, the two, Wilson and uh, Grayson, quickly became more than just doctor and patient. They became close friends and confidants. And again, only House and Joseph Tumulty had comparable amounts of closeness to Wilson during his presidency. The following morning, March 4th, 1913, Woodrow Wilson was inaugurated as president of the United States and delivered that address from which I shared a lot of excerpts at the start of the episode. Somewhat strangely, House actually did not go to the inauguration ceremony and the address, and he wrote in his diary that he just didn't like going to those sorts of events, though he and his wife did attend the luncheon at the White House afterward. Outgoing President Taft also attended at Wilson's invitation. Taft said that he hoped Wilson would be happy in the presidency, though he admitted that for himself, quote, I'm glad to be going. This is the loneliest place in the world, end quote. So Taft was very happy to leave the presidency after one term, which again, 
to me, is more evidence that he's a decent guy at the end of the day. At the luncheon, Wilson's sister Annie slipped somehow, and she fell and cut her head. And Dr. Grayson took care of her and stitched her wound, and this seems to have really begun Wilson's friendship with Dr. Grayson. In the afternoon, Wilson and his party went out in front of the White House to watch the inaugural parade, which was the largest in history. Something like 40,000 participants, and it lasted for four hours. By the way, interesting bit of trivia, one of those 40,000 people in the parade was a young Dwight David Eisenhower, who was then a West Point student. For the first time in 60 years, though, there was no inaugural ball. Wilson declined to have one. He said that he saw it as an unnecessary expense and as a potential source of graft and corruption. In the evening, instead, Wilson went back to the Shoreham Hotel for a while because a group of Princeton alumni were having a dinner there, and he ended up staying till past midnight. So, a little bit more about Wilson kind of settling into the White House and to the job of being president. And by the way, as a side note, if it sounds different from here on out through the rest of this episode, that is because from this point forward, I'm actually recording from a hotel. I'm actually traveling with my wife and... I was trying really hard to get this episode all done at home before we left, but it didn't work out, so I brought some of my portable podcasting mobile gorilla podcaster stuff with me, and I'm doing my best. But anyway, if it sounds a little different, or if there's some weird background noise or whatever, I'm in a hotel. So there you go, back to my DIY gorilla podcasting roots a little bit here. So, starting on his first full day on the job as president the day after the inauguration, Wilson kind of set the routine that endured for much of the rest of his presidency, other than when he was traveling, you know, abroad or whatever, like after World War I. But Wilson would typically show up for breakfast at 8.30 a.m. on workdays, and he would sit down to have what was his favorite breakfast, I shit you not, two unbeaten raw eggs in orange juice which he supposedly just sort of quaffed down. One historian said he gulped them down as if they were raw oysters. And along with that disgusting main course, he would also have a bowl of porridge and some coffee. Then around 9 a.m., he would head to the Oval Office to begin his workday. He would then deal with various matters of being president, you know, various official stuff, until lunchtime when he would knock off and usually have lunch with his family. Then after lunch, he'd go back to work for a few more hours, and he would usually call it quits in the afternoon and then go out for a car ride. He rarely did any work at night. On Sundays, he would sleep in a little bit later and then rise to go attend services at the Central Presbyterian Church. Now, after just five days on the job, Wilson started to feel ill, kind of a combination of headaches and gastrointestinal distress, very similar to what he had dealt with at periods of high stress earlier in his life. Dr. Grayson saw him and prescribed rest, feeling that Wilson was simply overwhelmed by all the busyness and hustle and bustle of his first few days as president, and, you know, having to deal with lots of people and meetings and making appointments and whatever. And again, this continued to cement the growing friendship between Grayson and Wilson. In fact, pretty soon after this, Wilson officially asked Josephus Daniels to assign Dr. Grayson to be his personal physician. 
Grayson started to get Wilson off of some of the things he'd been taking for headaches and digestive issues that were probably not helping and may very well have been making things worse. And as time went on, Dr. Grayson began to understand the degree to which Wilson's health really was precarious, particularly in regard to hypertension. Grayson put together a program to try to keep Wilson's health up and his stress down as much as possible so that he'd be able to serve out his term as president in decent health. And Grayson's regimen centered around regular exercise and fresh air, an improved diet, though I think Wilson kept eating his horrible breakfast, as well as regular rest. Wilson could sometimes tend to be a little bit of a workaholic, which of course only exacerbated his hypertension and his other health issues. So Grayson prescribed things like sleep, taking car rides through the countryside, occasional trips on the Mayflower, which was the presidential yacht at the time. And especially, Dr. Grayson urged Wilson to play regular games of golf. Dr. Grayson apparently also played himself, and he usually accompanied Wilson on both car rides and on golf games. So, again, this is a big part of how the two men became very close friends very quickly. According to more than one historian, Wilson actually holds the record for playing more golf while president than anyone else. Though how precise the data is behind this argument, I'm not so sure. But for sure, even if he's not number one, Wilson definitely played a shit ton of golf. However, sources indicate that he never got very good at it. Now, in terms of pursuing his political agenda, his new freedom platform, Wilson was determined to kind of reenact his performance as governor of New Jersey, but of course on an even bigger scale as president, meaning that he wanted to come right out of the gates aggressively pushing some key pieces of legislation in order to pass things he wanted to pass. John Milton Cooper writes that Wilson, quote, wanted to accomplish something no incoming president had ever done. He wanted to introduce a comprehensive program of legislation at the outset of his administration. Before he left for Bermuda, he announced that he would call into session the newly elected Congress, where Democrats had a top-heavy majority in the House and a narrower margin of control in the Senate on April 15, 1913, six weeks after his inauguration. Under the Constitution, this Congress did not have to convene until December 1913 the new president was signaling that he meant to break with politics as usual, end quote. Now, in the past, even such quote-unquote strong executives as Teddy Roosevelt or Abraham Lincoln had allowed Congress to have more of the initiative in shaping the legislative agenda than Wilson intended to do. Remember that Wilson, for years, had argued that the U.S. would be better off if its government was more like the British parliamentary model, in which the prime minister and his cabinet, in practical terms, really function kind of simultaneously as head of the legislative and executive functions of the government. 
So Wilson was really kind of breaking new ground by seizing the initiative right from the get-go with really trying to shape the agenda of Congress towards passing his legislative platform. Wilson would also basically set new precedents by speaking in person before Congress. Surprising as this might seem to us today, this was actually not done prior to Wilson. Now, the first two presidents of the United States, George Washington and John Adams, had delivered their State of the Union addresses in person. But every president from Jefferson through William Howard Taft, as far as I know, refrained from speaking in person to Congress even for State of the Union addresses. And instead, they would send written addresses to Congress to be read by a clerk. And even though that's not explicit in the Constitution, this kind of tradition of presidents not speaking to Congress in person came to be seen over the years as almost kind of like an implied check and balance that limited the executive's control and influence over the Congress. But Wilson, by contrast, not only delivered his State of the Union addresses in person as speeches, but he would also go speak to Congress whenever he was pushing what he thought was some particularly important piece of legislation. Not everybody was a fan of this. It rubbed some people the wrong way, including even some Democrats. Democratic Senator John Williams of Mississippi, for example, said, quote, I regret all this cheap and tawdry imitation of English royalty, end quote. But Wilson didn't care if he broke precedents or if he ruffled some feathers here and there. He was really determined to put his political theories into practice, as he had in New Jersey, just again, on an even bigger scale. If you're just jumping into this series now, or if you need a refresher on what Wilson's political theories were, you can jump back to DHP episode 207, which I believe was part five in the Wilson series, for some admittedly excruciatingly detailed analysis of his academic writings. But basically, to kind of simplify it, he wanted to take the country and the government in a much more statist and collectivist direction. But tactically and practically, he thought the best way to do this was incrementally, and using kind of the existing rhetoric and trappings of more traditional American politics. So again, to kind of simplify a bit, he was going to use what was often Jeffersonian-sounding rhetoric in order to insert what were really late 19th and early 20th century European statist ideas derived from thinkers like George Hegel. Now, for anybody at the time who was paying attention, it should have been obvious what Wilson was doing. But of course, back then, just like today, most Americans aren't really paying attention to what politicians are saying, and even more importantly, to what they're doing. Instead, most Americans back then, just like today, are mostly just seeing and hearing what they want to see and hear. And I think this is why so many traditional, kind of more conservative-leaning Democrats nonetheless supported Wilson, even though if they read his academic writings, or if they looked at his tenure as the governor of New Jersey... They should have seen him for what he was, which was a progressive wolf in a costume of a conservative sheep. To kind of borrow a metaphor from the English Fabians, who, by the way, have a lot of interesting parallels to American progressives. 
Wilson would also break new ground by being the first U.S. president to hold press conferences in the White House. The first of these was held in the early afternoon on March 15, 1913. And at the first press conference, Wilson asked the reporters present to, quote, Go into partnership with me, that you lend me your assistance as nobody else can, and then, after you have brought this precious freight of opinion into Washington, let us try and make true gold here that will go out from Washington, end quote. And all I can say is this sounds pretty fucking gross, this disgusting co-optation of the supposedly adversarial and independent press by the holders of political power is just not a new thing. Over the course of 1913, Wilson held a total of 60 press conferences. He would continue to hold them pretty frequently in 1914, though in 1915 they became less frequent and then stopped altogether for a while in the summer, although he did resume them the following year. Wilson also granted one-on-one interviews with important journalists of the time, like Ray Stannard Baker and Edith Harbell, both of whom would end up writing very favorably about Wilson. These interactions with the press, along with his speeches to the Congress, were a major part of his strategy for getting his new freedom platform passed through Congress. By the way, some sources say that Wilson was the last American president to write all of his own speeches, Although, I've read elsewhere that Herbert Hoover wrote his own speeches, too. And if that's true, then Wilson was the second-to-last president to write his own speeches. Early in his presidency, Wilson said, quote, What I am interested in is having the government of the United States more concerned about human rights than about property rights, end quote. This separation of human rights and property rights is a classic progressive move that goes against the prior American political thought sort of tradition, as well as the more broad tradition of classical liberalism going back at least to the 17th century in some parts of Western Europe, in which property rights are, in my opinion rightly, considered to be a type of human right, because it's trying to ascertain who holds the right to a particular resource. So it's not that property rights are the rights of the property themselves, they're the rights of the owner of the property to control the property. But of course, Wilson was actually rejecting much of classical liberalism and much of the kind of American political tradition from before, even while trying to sound superficially like he's still in that tradition. Again, the kind of wolf in sheep's clothing sort of tactic. So words like rights and freedom will be used a lot but they'll be used to mean different things than what they had meant for at least much of the previous two or three centuries in most of Western political thought, outside of a few status here and there. There's a very interesting book entitled Designing the Industrial State, The Intellectual Pursuit of Collectivism in America, written by an historian named James Gilbert. And there's a chapter in that book that is primarily focused on an American socialist activist from the time period, from the early 20th century, a guy named William English Walling. And in this chapter, mostly about William English Walling, James Gilbert writes, quote, In three articles published in 1913, Walling argued that not only did collectivist thinking dominate the Socialist Party and most reform proposals, it also inspired the more practical projects of President Woodrow Wilson. Wilson was a thorough state socialist, Walling decided, 
because he believed, like all such men, that society was an organism, and further, that government is society. Given support from labor organizations, Walling predicted, Wilson would pursue state socialist projects, such as government ownership of leading industries, all in the face of big business opposition. The state socialists had defined labor as a commodity, and the worker as a kind of machine, or a functional unit in production. Wilson agreed, and went on to assert the existence of another functional group, the intellectuals and experts, upon whom the government would depend for advice and guidance. This latter group formed a liaison between Wilson and the important reform movements of the day. End quote. Though Wilson, for the most part, didn't advocate for direct state ownership of the means of production during his time as president, nonetheless, I really think Walling was reading Wilson more correctly than a lot of other people were at the time. And I even wonder if Walling might have read Wilson's academic work. But anyway, let's go ahead and get towards the story of roughly Wilson's first year in office and his early successes in getting his agenda passed. But before we dig into that, I need to mention a couple of things that kind of set the stage for a lot of what Wilson gets done. I want to mention two extremely important changes to the American system, one of which was passed about a month before Wilson was sworn in as president, and one of which was passed around the end of his first month in office. Now, Wilson strongly supported both of these changes, though I wouldn't say these were really quote-unquote his achievements, since he hadn't been personally involved with crafting them, and he hadn't been a major force behind actually getting them passed. Though, as I said, he definitely supported both, and both of these were important in enabling him to do a lot of what he did as president. And as you may already be guessing, if you're already pretty familiar with American history from this time period, I'm talking about the two amendments to the U.S. Constitution that were passed in 1913. Those being, of course, the 16th and 17th Amendments. By the way, the only other case I know of in which more than one amendment was passed to the U.S. Constitution, you know, ratified, in the same year, was all the way back in 1791. And that's when the first ten amendments, i.e. the Bill of Rights, were ratified, because those were ratified as kind of a package deal, technically all ratified on the same day. So, having two amendments go through in the same year is, as far as I know, unique, other than in the particular case of the Bill of Rights itself. In one of his last, if not the last, big speeches that he gave to the New Jersey legislature before he officially resigned to become president of the United States, Wilson had urged the New Jersey legislature to ratify these two amendments, because they were still in the ratification process by the states at the time. And like I said, both of these would be passed in 1913, by enough states, you know, three-quarters to be in the Constitution. So you've got the 16th Amendment, which would authorize the U.S. federal government to levy an income tax directly on individuals, and the 17th Amendment, which would make U.S. senators directly popularly elected by their state's voters, rather than by their state legislatures, which is what the Constitution had originally stipulated. The 16th Amendment was ratified by enough states to become part of the Constitution on February 3rd, 1913, so again, technically about a month before Wilson was sworn in. But with the amendment now in the Constitution, it still required the Congress 
to pass a regular law that actually would set up an income tax, you know, specifying the rates and all that kind of stuff. This would ultimately be handled by something called the Revenue Act of 1913, which Wilson was the main driving force behind pushing through Congress. Now, that act was primarily talked about and debated at the time in terms of tariff reductions, but it also established the first federal income tax framework under the 16th Amendment. More on that in a little bit. The 17th Amendment was officially ratified by enough states to get into the Constitution on April 8th, 1913, so when Wilson had been president for about a month. And coincidentally, the same day that he made his first address to Congress on the subject of tariff reform. Now, as with the 16th Amendment, Wilson was not the major figure in either writing or passing this, but he definitely supported it. And like I said before, this act made the Senate more democratic, which progressives would generally just see as completely a good thing with no downsides or anything like that. But of course, I and perhaps you as well have a different perspective. Because by making the Senate more democratic, this reduces the degree to which the Senate will counterbalance the very democratic nature of the House of Representatives, which is part of why the framers of the Constitution designed the Senate the way they did. They were explicitly trying to counterbalance the very democratic House of Representatives. So it kind of erodes part of the check and balance structure within the legislature. But this amendment also has the effect of cutting state governments out of having any direct input on federal politics. Now, under the original provisions of the U.S. Constitution, in which senators were chosen by the state legislators of their state, this meant that the U.S. Senate prior to 1913 was sort of like the U.N. of the American states. This meant that state governments were what were represented in the U.S. Senate, not masses of state voters. Voters of the state were only indirectly represented in the U.S. Senate because it was they who had elected their state legislators, who then in turn chose the U.S. senators for that state. Among other things, this meant that senators were at least incentivized to be a bit concerned and maybe even defensive about states' rights and prerogatives. Now, not that all senators always thought or acted in that way, for sure, but it at least meant that senators had to take into account the perspectives of their state government. But under the 17th Amendment, state governments were essentially cut out of the loop, and U.S. senators became directly beholden to masses of voters in their home state. Now, of course, in practice, because it would take a lot of money to run mass media campaigns for potentially millions of votes in their state, this actually, in practice, causes senators to be more beholden to special interest money in order to fund these campaigns aimed at masses of voters. So this amendment makes senators more desperately beholden to special interests rather than less, which is what Wilson and all the proponents of this change had argued, you know, would happen. The progressives and populists who had been pushing this amendment for a while basically said, oh yeah, by making the Senate more democratic, you'll get rid of special interest money you know, influence on senators. The exact opposite is what has happened over the past 108 years. But in Wilson's mind and the mind of most progressives and populists at the time, this was a major milestone on the road 
to drastically centralizing the American Union in order to achieve Wilson's goal of so-called modern democracy. And the history of the last 108 years in the American political system shows that with this change, much more power became concentrated in the federal government at the expense of the states, and also that, like I said, the importance and influence of special interest money has grown exponentially, not been reduced. So for the rest of this episode, I'm going to mostly talk about the major legislative successes of Wilson over the course of 1913. Wilson's first item on his legislative agenda was tariff reform, basically trying to lower U.S. tariffs, which had been very high ever since the Civil War era. Republicans had tended to dominate at the federal level ever since the Civil War. Remember, Woodrow Wilson was only the second Democratic president in the 50 years since the Civil War to make it to the White House. And the Republicans had been as a party committed to high protective tariffs ever since their founding in the 1850s. The only Democratic president in between the Civil War and Wilson was Grover Cleveland, and he had tried to lower the tariffs, but if I remember right, he had either little or no success at all. Someone once asked me if there was anything Woodrow Wilson did as president that I liked or agreed with. And the only thing of any real significance I could think of was that he fought and ultimately succeeded in lowering U.S. tariffs. Now, as you may know if you've listened to me for a while, I'm basically a free market anarchist. And as part of that, I'm all for complete free trade. So, for sure, in a vacuum nothing else considered, I would agree with Wilson that lowering tariffs is a good thing. Though I'd probably differ with him in that I would just eliminate all tariffs, and I don't think he ever advocated for that. But, and there is a very, very big but, Wilson didn't want to just cut tariffs and call it a day. No, he, along with many other progressives and populists, wanted to link cuts to the tariff, on the one hand, to creating a federal income tax to offset it, on the other. Now, populists and progressives argued in terms of redistributing wealth and redistributing the tax burden. They argued that the tariff tended to be regressive and that an income tax would be progressive, meaning the tariff tended to cost Regular people, you know, middle and working class people disproportionately more, whereas an income tax, the way they were going to structure it, would cost the rich more. So you're rolling one tax back, but you're simultaneously replacing it with something else. Now, a generally left-leaning person would probably say, yeah, well, if you're going to have taxes, it's probably better to have taxes that tend to hit the rich a little more rather than taxes that tend to hit the poor more. 
And again, in a vacuum, I'd be somewhat sympathetic if I put my statist hat on and said, okay, we're going to have a state, we're going to have taxes. You know, is it better if the burden falls more on the poor or the rich? Well, I think any decent person, given those constraints in that scenario, would say, well, you know, it's probably better if the burden's got to fall on somebody disproportionately that it fall on the people with the most ability to pay, right? But there's a huge difference between a direct tax like an income tax, particularly one that is as intrusive as an income tax, versus an indirect tax like a tariff that is a consumption tax that's only indirectly paid by the actual consumer. Basically, in order to collect a tariff, the government doesn't have to have the power to snoop into everybody's personal business and finances. All they got to do is make sure that customs agents ensure that the tariff is paid when the foreign goods come into a port or whatever. And yeah, that's a little intrusive for people in the import-export business, but that's a relatively small percentage. And yeah, ultimately the cost of the tariff is going to be paid by the consumer who buys the good because it's going to be built into the cost of the good. But the consumer who actually buys the good with, you know, the tariff built into the price of it, they're not personally you know, interacting with the IRS and being snooped at and whatever. And so an income tax is always going to be a far more intrusive tax from the perspective of civil liberties and privacy and all that sort of stuff, because you're going to have to give your tax collectors a huge amount of power to look into people's personal dealings and finances and things like that in a way that previously would have been thought of as you know, violating the Bill of Rights. So anyway, you're replacing one tax with another that is far, far more intrusive and damaging to economic life and even to civil liberties than a mere tariff, because an income tax is going to require an enforcement agency with all kinds of powers to audit people, to monitor people's personal financial records and their history. And all of this is much more damaging to liberty than just paying a fucking tariff. So all of this said, this means that even on the one issue that I can think of that Wilson was good on from kind of a classical liberal or libertarian or free market perspective, the tariff, He more than compensated for being good on that one issue and wanting to lower the tariff by wanting to replace it with something that is far more statist and oppressive and intrusive. Wilson delivered his first address to Congress after being president for roughly about a month on the subject of tariff reform. This address to a joint session of Congress was delivered on April 8, 1913, and it was relatively brief. In kind of standard word processor manuscript format, the speech runs a little bit under two pages. And I think supposedly when he delivered it, it ran about 10 minutes or maybe even a little bit less. Now in this speech, when Wilson is talking about the need to lower tariffs, he's mostly on pretty sound economic grounds, though he does pull back from advocating just full across-the-board free trade, or even for just drastic across-the-board tariff reductions. Instead, he kind of moderates a bit. He seems to advocate for reducing tariffs on kind of a case-by-case basis, but to move in the general direction of free trade incrementally. That said, there's not much in this speech that's terrible. 
because in this speech, he doesn't actually explicitly mention the income tax as a replacement for high tariffs, even though it's very clear that he already was linking the two in his own thinking, and even in some of his other statements. But most of what's actually said in this speech, I could see a much better and much more free market-oriented president, someone like, say, Grover Cleveland, actually saying. So, I'll give you a good-sized excerpt of the speech. Not quite the whole thing, I pulled a few passages to shorten it a little bit. But this will be the majority of the speech. So, Woodrow Wilson, first speech to Congress, April 8th, 1913. Quote, Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, gentlemen of the Congress, I am very glad to have this opportunity to address the two houses directly and to verify for myself the impression that the President of the United States is a person, not a mere department of the government hailing Congress from some isolated island of jealous power. Sending messages, not speaking naturally with his own voice, that he is a human being trying to cooperate with other human beings in a common service. After this pleasant experience, I shall feel quite normal in all our dealings with one another. I have called the Congress together in extraordinary session because a duty was laid upon the party now in power at the recent elections, which it ought to perform promptly, in order that the burden carried by the people under existing law may be lightened as soon as possible and in order also that the business interests of the country may not be kept too long in suspense as to what the fiscal changes are to be, to which they will be required to adjust themselves. It is clear to the whole country that the tariff duties must be altered. They must be changed to meet the radical alteration in the conditions of our economic life, which the country has witnessed within the last generation. The sooner that is done, the sooner we shall escape from suffering from the facts, and the sooner our men of business will be free to thrive by the law of nature, the nature of free business, instead of by the law of legislation, an artificial arrangement. We have seen tariff legislation wander very far afield in our day, very far indeed from the field in which our prosperity might have had a normal growth and stimulation. We long ago passed beyond the modest notion of protecting the industries of the country, and moved boldly forward to the idea that businesses were entitled to the direct patronage of the government. We have sought in our tariff schedules to give each group of manufacturers or producers what they themselves thought they needed in order to maintain a practically exclusive market as against the rest of the world. Consciously or unconsciously, we have built up a set of privileges and exemptions from competition behind which it was easy by any, even the crudest, forms of combination to organize monopoly, end quote. And by the way, at the time, a very frequent kind of slogan of progressive and populist critics of the high tariff was, the tariff is the mother of trusts. In other words, by shielding American producers from foreign competition, it makes it that much easier for American producers to cartelize or to establish monopoly through mergers or something like this, because all you had to do was figure out how to avoid competition domestically, and the tariff would take care of any potential foreign competition. Anyway, back to Wilson. Quote, Only new principles of action will save us from a final hard crystallization of monopoly and a complete loss of the influences that quicken enterprise and keep independent energy alive. 
it is plain what those principles must be. We must abolish everything that bears even the semblance of privilege or of any kind of artificial advantage, and put our businessmen and producers under the stimulation of a constant necessity to be efficient, economical, and enterprising, masters of competitive supremacy, better workers and merchants than any in the world. We must make changes in our fiscal laws and our fiscal system, whose object is development, a more free and wholesome development, not revolution or upset or confusion. We must build up trade, especially foreign trade. We need the outlet and the enlarged field of energy more than we ever did before. We must build up industry as well and must adopt freedom in the place of artificial stimulation only so far as it will build, not pull down. In dealing with the tariff, the method by which this may be done will be a matter of judgment, exercise item by item. End quote. So, you know, notice he's not saying let's just slash all tariffs across the board as much as we can. He's saying, well, you know, we're going to do it on a case by case basis, blah, blah, blah. But in general, he's, you know, advocating in the right direction on the issue of the tariff. Back to Wilson, quote, We are to deal with the facts of our own day, with the facts of no other, and to make laws which square with those facts. It is best, indeed it is necessary, to begin with the tariff. I will urge nothing upon you now at the opening of your session which can obscure that first object, or divert our energies from that clearly defined duty. At a later time, I may take the liberty of calling your attention to reforms which should press close upon the heels of the tariff changes, if not accompany them, of which the chief is the reform of our banking and currency laws. But just now I refrain. For the present, I put these matters on one side, and think only of this one thing, of the changes in our fiscal system which may best serve to open once more the free channels of prosperity to a great people whom we would serve to the utmost, and throughout both rank and file. I thank you for your courtesy. End quote. By the way, when he mentions reform of our banking and currency laws, what he's talking about ends up being the creation of the Federal Reserve System, which happens later in the same year. But again, all in all, this isn't a terrible speech. And admittedly, by Wilson's standards, it's pretty concise. So that got the ball rolling. And a bill sponsored by Oscar Underwood to lower the tariffs and institute an income tax, made it through the House pretty quickly, as the Democrats had a pretty big majority there at the time, but it stalled out in the Senate, both because the Democrats had a narrower majority there, and also because, you know, the intrinsic kind of rules of the Senate provide more opportunity for even small numbers of senators to gum things up and slow things down. Wilson continued to use his preferred strategy— of appealing directly to the people through speeches and press conferences in order to bring public opinion pressure on the Congress, while simultaneously working behind the scenes to try and work out some details and make some minor changes here and there to bring some additional people on board. Wilson did periodically get frustrated, though, as the tariff reform debate dragged on. And as he often would, throughout his presidency, he was quite willing to question the motivations of the people who disagreed with him. And he wasn't always wrong, by the way. On May 26, 1913, Wilson said in some public remarks, I think in a press conference, 
that those in the Congress who opposed tariff reform were basically just bought and paid for by wealthy and powerful corporate special interests. Wilson said, quote, I think that the public ought to know the extraordinary exertions being made by the lobby in Washington to gain recognition for certain alterations of the tariff bill. Washington has seldom seen so numerous, so industrious, or so insidious a lobby. There is every evidence that money without limit is being spent to sustain the lobby and to create an appearance of a pressure of public opinion antagonistic to some of the chief items of the tariff bill. In response to these remarks, some of Wilson's opponents basically accused him of being a conspiracy theorist, though of course they didn't use that term back then. But this is a rare case in which I would say I think Wilson is basically correct in impugning the motivations of his political opponents. There's every reason to believe, for example, that the sugar lobby would be spending a lot of money to keep their protections in place as would the steel lobby for theirs and so forth. This is kind of pretty basic public choice economics. In the wranglings over the bill, Wilson tried to get some Republicans on board, but he had only limited success. He also faced some issues from some Democrats, particularly a few Democrats from the South and West, who were worried about protections for sugar and for wool, respectively. On the Republican side, the Republican Party had had high tariffs as a centerpiece of its platform from the get-go, from its inception as an organization. But there were some kind of insurgent, Robert La Follette-type independent progressive Republicans who at least had some tendency to be anti-tariff in the name of, you know, the tariff is the mother of trusts. So it took a while, it actually took several months, but eventually... The Senate passed the 1913 Revenue Act by a vote of 44 to 37. It was almost 100% a party-line vote. Only one Democrat voted against it, I think, from Louisiana and largely over the sugar tariff issue. And the only Republican to switch ranks and vote to lower the tariffs was actually Robert LaFollette himself. Wilson signed the 1913 Revenue Act into law on October 3rd, 1913, at a special signing ceremony. The 1913 Revenue Act did cut tariff rates pretty significantly. It cut average tariff rates from approximately 40% down to approximately 25%, which made it the single largest cut to tariff rates since before the Civil War. But more important in terms of long-term legacy was the part of the act that created the first federal income tax since 1872. This part of the 1913 Revenue Act levied a 1% income tax on incomes above $3,000 a year, with a graduated or progressive rate rising at various tiers of income up to a top rate of a whopping 6% that would be levied on incomes above $500,000. Now, obviously, a dollar in 2021 is very different from a dollar in 1913. And we have the Federal Reserve to thank for a lot of that, but that's a different story. So how does this equate to today's dollars? Well, according to Inflation Calculator, $3,000 in 1913 equates to around $80,000 today. So that means that in today's terms, no one in 1913 who made under the equivalent as an individual of $80,000 a year owed anything on the income tax. So this actually meant that the vast majority of Americans 
were totally exempt from the income tax as levied in 1913. In fact, in 1913, only about 3% of Americans made over $3,000 a year. So that means that 97% of Americans were completely off the hook for the income tax in 1913. And the top rate of 6%, woohoo, only applied to incomes above half a million dollars. And in 2021 terms, half a million dollars from 1913 equates to over $13 million today. So in other words, in order to have to pay the whopping top rate of 6%, you had to make the equivalent in today's dollars of $13 million. So I don't even know what fraction of Americans that would have been in 1913, but it's a very small fraction of a percent that had to pay 6%. The act also created a 1% corporate income tax. Now, proponents of the federal income tax had, for years, been selling it to American working and middle-class people by saying that, A, most Americans wouldn't even have to pay anything under it because it would only apply to the wealthiest few percent of income earners, and B, even those few wealthy percent who would have to pay something would only have to pay a few percent. None of them would even have to pay more than 6% on their income. Now, as this was implemented in the original 1913 Revenue Act, the first, you know, version of the income tax under the new amendment, that was true. Most Americans would have to pay nothing, and even those who had to pay, who were the wealthiest few percent, would only have to pay a few percent on their income. That was true. But not for long. Because... The very next year, World War I would break out in Europe. And while American taxes initially remained the same, skip ahead to 1916, and even though in 1916 the U.S. still was not officially in the war, and even though at the time Wilson was campaigning for re-election on the slogan, he kept us out of war, as part of the kind of preparedness, just-in-case proto-mobilization that was happening in 1916, Congress passed and Wilson signed the 1916 Revenue Act, which basically doubled the tax rates that had been set up in 1913. The 1916 Act also added an estate tax. Then, in 1917, the U.S. did officially get in the war, and soon thereafter, the Revenue Act of 1917 was passed as part of full-blown, full-on war mobilization. By the way, I'll definitely cover this stuff in way more detail when I get to, you know, the part of Wilson's presidency where he's mobilizing for war and all that, for sure. But long story short, the 1917 Act jacked the rates up even further and significantly increased the number and percentage of Americans who would have to pay the federal income tax at all. And then yet another wartime revenue act, the next year, 1918, would jack rates up even further than that, so that by the time World War I ended, yet another wartime revenue act in 1918 would jack up rates even further, so that by the time World War I ended, the U.S. income tax was applying to a lot more Americans and with a lot higher rates than the original income tax passed in 1913. And in contrast to the marketing of the pro-income tax people prior to 1913, you know, who had sold it under the auspices of most people aren't going to even pay anything, and even those who do, it's only going to be a few percent. 
So these people, no doubt, would excuse what happened by saying that it was an unforeseen emergency, i.e. the war, that caused them to just have no choice but to jack up the rates and increase the number of people who were subject to the tax. Now, to me, this is much more like a kind of bait-and-switch, because I'm sure the people who were pushing the income tax up to 1913, they didn't have any secret foreknowledge of World War I, you know, being headed down the pike the following year. I, I don't have any reason to believe any of them had any secret knowledge that, you know, next year World War One's going to happen. But I think anybody could have looked back at history and kind of seen that once you get the camel's nose under the tent, when it comes to things like being able to tax people's incomes, even if the initial rates are small and most people are exempt, sooner or later, some sort of crises or emergencies or whatever are going to come along. And when that happens, those inches that you gave them in the original very low income tax are going to result in them taking a mile. But anyway, at the time, the 1913 Revenue Act was seen as a huge victory for Wilson, his first big win in trying to pass the main planks of his new freedom. From there, Wilson would pivot to so-called banking and currency reform, which basically meant creating some sort of new central banking system. And he'd already been getting the ball rolling on this while the Revenue Act was still being fought out in the Senate. But once that was finally passed, Wilson could then put all of his political capital behind banking and currency reform, so-called. So let's wrap up by talking a bit about Wilson's efforts at so-called banking and currency reform, which resulted in the creation of the Federal Reserve. Now, I'm not going to cover the entire history of the creation of the Federal Reserve System here, because that could easily be a many-part series in its own right, and honestly, at some point, I do intend to do just that. But again, as with the 16th and 17th Amendments, once again, Woodrow Wilson was by no means the originator, or even really the main driving force behind this, but it did pass on his watch. He did have a hand, in this case anyway, of influencing some of the details, and he did strongly support its passage. And it's certainly one of the more important and long-impacting accomplishments of his presidency, perhaps second only to Wilson's decision to get into World War I. So I'll do my best to give the short version of how it came into being without dropping the needle too far back on the backstory. And I admit, I'm giving the backstory a bit of short shrift here, just for the sake of brevity, and again, because I think the story of the Federal Reserve System and its origins is a whole separate story in its own right. And here we're more talking about the Wilson presidency itself. The movement to create a new central bank for the United States had been building for years before Wilson ever became president. Most factions of the American business and political elites wanted some sort of new central bank in the early 20th century. And the country hadn't had a true central bank since the Second Bank of the United States back in Andrew Jackson's era. Since the Civil War, the country had had a weird sort of intermediate system that you might call something like a quasi-central bank, composed of a small number of large banks that were chartered as so-called national banks under the national banking acts that were passed 
during the Civil War. And you may remember me talking about these acts and what they did back in the Civil War series. So these private banks were chartered as national banks, and they were given certain special powers and privileges that other regular banks didn't have, and they collectively kind of performed some of the functions of a true central bank. But many people weren't satisfied with this system for various reasons, and one of them, by the way, was that this quasi-central banking, national banking system didn't have the capacity to do massive bailouts. So, for example, there was a financial crash in, I believe it was 1907, and essentially the House of Morgan ended up bailing out a lot of the U.S. financial system. Something that, you know, in our time, we expect the Federal Reserve does, but back then, the Federal Reserve didn't exist. But people of different interests and different ideologies had slightly different takes on what the problems were with the existing system and also what exactly they wanted to replace it with. So in other words, just because most of America's different factions of elites at the time wanted something like a new central bank system, didn't mean there was general agreement over all the details of exactly how it would be structured, what it would do, who would run it, and so forth. Now, the main man prior to Wilson's election, who had been working on this project very aggressively for years, was Republican Senator Nelson Aldrich of Rhode Island. And Nelson Aldrich was one of the most connected politicians of his era, and he had various ties to elements of both the Morgan and Rockefeller camps in kind of America's business-slash-political war of the time. Among other things, he was married to one of John D. Rockefeller's daughters. Now, Aldrich would probably be considered something like a corporatist conservative. He wasn't really a progressive, although he sometimes would agree with progressives on certain issues when it was the types of things where progressives were advocating for various degrees of government regulation of the economy in ways that were, you know, supposedly to make things more fair and roll back corporate excesses and whatever. But in reality, it was regulatory capture. It was often the big corporations themselves wanting to be regulated in order to kind of cartelize their particular industry and whatever. And so... To a large degree, that's what the Federal Reserve System is going to be doing for America's big banks. So, in general, the corporatist conservative types like Aldrich, and this is also true of some, though by no means all, of the kind of corporatist progressives as well, what Aldrich wanted was a highly privatized and highly centralized central banking system with very little government involvement or control or oversight. And a lot of the big bankers themselves, for obvious reasons, favored this idea. And as far as I know, some of the corporatist progressives, you know, guys like Teddy Roosevelt, they seem to have largely agreed with this as well. Now, your populists, like your William Jennings Bryan types, they wanted a much more directly government-controlled and government-run bank that would, they believed, act more in the interests of the common people and smaller businesses than one that was controlled by people like the House of Morgan. And then there were progressive Democrats like Woodrow Wilson, Louis Brandeis, and Congressman Carter Glass of Virginia, who wanted some sort of a hybrid central bank, and at times they even called it not really a central bank because they wanted it a little bit more decentralized and whatever. 
So what they wanted was something that was not as socialistic or directly state-controlled and dominated as what the Bryanites, the populace, wanted. But they also wanted something that was not as purely privately controlled as what Aldrich and his backers wanted. Carter Glass's vision evolved to one in which the basic idea of the Aldrich plan was given a little bit more government influence and oversight, and in which the structure of it was a little bit more decentralized than what Nelson Aldrich had been pushing, with regional branches of the new bank supposed to have some sort of degree of autonomy from each other. Now, Nelson Aldrich had attended that top-secret meeting in Jekyll Island, Georgia, back in 1910, that you may have heard of, and there's a great book all about this and the story of the Federal Reserve called The Creature from Jekyll Island. And at this secret meeting, at what at the time was a privately owned resort island for the super wealthy, representatives of all the major financial factions in the U.S. had drawn up basically the first draft of a plan for a new central bank. And ever since then, Nelson Aldrich had been pushing this plan to create a central bank as basically just the Jekyll Island plan, which he had, you know, been present for and been involved with. But with the Democrats winning not only the White House, but also control of both houses of Congress in 1912, Aldrich, who was a leading Republican, would no longer have the ability to control the agenda that he had had back when the Republicans controlled the White House in both or at least, you know, one house of Congress. So basically, in order to have any hope of passing a bill to create some sort of new central banking system, it would have to be a version backed by a top Democrat. You know, aside from the president, it would have to get some major Democratic backing in Congress. And it would have to get the support of the vast majority of Democrats. So this meant that whatever new plan was drawn up, would have to throw some bones, or at least appear to throw some bones, to both the kind of less corporatist-leaning progressive Democrats, and maybe even pick up the support of some populist Democrats, too. Also, they probably wanted to see if they could craft the bill so that they might pick up a few anti-corporate progressives from the Republican Party, the insurgent types like Robert LaFollette of Wisconsin. So the point man in Congress for crafting and ultimately passing a new Democrat version of a central banking system, one that would be less obviously crafted by and for the kingpins of Wall Street. Now, it would still end up basically serving their interests, but it would be at least a little bit less obvious than the Aldrich plan in that regard. The main point man in Congress now would be Carter Glass, who was at the time a congressman. He later became a senator and a number of other things over the course of a long career. He was a Democratic congressman, generally considered a progressive from Virginia, who at the time was the chairman of the House Banking Committee. So obviously he's the key guy if you're going to do this. And throughout his career, Glass was a guy who was always very interested in money and finance. And he would continue to be basically the top Democrat in that area, right up through World War II. And among other things, he had major input on the sort of banking and financial aspects of FDR's New Deal in the 1930s. His name is on a lot of major financial laws from the New Deal era. Like, for example, you may have heard of, it came up uh, back in the 08-09 crash time period, 
reference to the Glass-Steagall Act, which was passed in the 30s and then repealed in the 90s. And some people blamed the financial crash of 0809 on the repeal of that. And that's a whole different debate. But anyway, that's just an example of one of the many major pieces of legislation from the New Deal dealing with banking and money and stuff that Glass was still involved with. Glass was conferring with Wilson both by letter and also sometimes in person, going all the way back to the period shortly after Wilson's election before he was inaugurated. Wilson, who really didn't have anything like a deep knowledge and understanding of things like money, banking, and finance, had to lean heavily on advisors for this issue. So he leaned very heavily on Glass, as well as Louis Brandeis, who had some knowledge and interest in this area as well, and a handful of progressive economists. In addition, Colonel House would also chime in on the issue from time to time, too. Wilson seems to have on some level understood his own ignorance and shortcomings on this issue, and he realized he was having to defer to others who at least claimed and appeared to have more expertise than he did. So, during the period of the debate on this issue, Wilson wrote to Mary Holbert, formerly known as Mary Peck, Wilson's possible uh, affair partner, you might say. Wilson wrote to her during this period, quote, It is not like the tariff, about which opinion had been forming long years through. There are almost as many judgments as there are men. To form a single plan and a single intention about it seems at times a task so various and so elusive that it is hard to keep one's heart from falling. End quote. Now, early on in the Wilson administration, Treasury Secretary McAdoo put forth a plan of his own to create a new banking and currency system, but then he eventually withdrew it and threw his support behind the version that Carter Glass developed. Wilson continued in the early months of his administration to be a little bit confused by the various versions of a new banking system that were floating around and being proposed. In June 1913, Wilson had a meeting with Louis Brandeis to try to gain some clarity. And it seems that Brandeis's biggest point was that while private banking interests could and probably should be involved with a new central bank to some degree, they absolutely shouldn't be in total control of it. Instead, Brandeis argued, the new bank should be one in which the government was the kind of senior or dominant partner with private banking interests. In other words, what we might call a corporate fascism, but with the state in the more dominant position rather than the corporations. Wilson decided that the version that Carter Glass was developing at the time was close enough to the thinking of Brandeis and some of the other men he was consulting with on the issue that Wilson decided that he was going to get behind Carter Glass's version. Later that same month, on June 23, 1913, while tariff reform was still grinding its way through the Senate, Wilson spoke to Congress in person for the second time this time on the banking issue. Once again, his remarks were pretty concise, especially by Wilson's standards. Under two pages typed in standard format, probably under 10 minutes spoken. Now, this was during a typically hot, humid D.C. summer. And at that time, Congress was not in session typically as much of the year as it is now. And it was pretty typical at the time that Congress would go on recess. 
for much, if not all of the summer, and most of the members would leave and, you know, go to summer homes up in the mountains or someplace to get away from the nasty heat and all that. But Wilson, as we've said again and again, didn't care about precedent, didn't care about ruffling feathers. He kept Congress in session and, you know, went and appeared to them again, right in the middle of the time of year when usually they were on break. Perhaps he even relished making the members stay in D.C. and sweat their asses off and not retreat to their summer homes, as most of them were used to doing. As was so often the case in this speech, Wilson was putting forth very statist progressive proposals, but cloaking them in the language of classical liberalism and more traditional Democratic Party ideas and rhetoric, that sort of thing. He described the creation of this new central bank, which he emphasized would be government-controlled and government-empowered, though, as we know, in practice, Wall Street ended up running the show anyway. But he described this new money and banking system as, above all, a liberating thing for businesses. And he repeated the frequent talking point of the time for those pushing a new central banking system that money and credit needed to be made more, quote-unquote, elastic in order to meet the needs of the country's growing economy. Particularly in light of the economic boom that Wilson hoped would follow in the wake of tariff reform. So, here's a good chunk, you know, the majority of what Wilson said in this address, with a little bit chopped out for the sake of brevity. So this is Woodrow Wilson, June 23rd, 1913, message to Congress regarding the banking system. Quote, Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, gentlemen of the Congress, it is under the compulsion of what seems to me a clear and imperative duty that I have a second time this session sought the privilege of addressing you in person. I know, of course, that the heated season of the year is upon us, that work in these chambers and in the committee rooms is likely to become a burden as the season lengthens, and that every consideration of personal convenience and personal comfort, perhaps, in the cases of some of us, considerations of personal health even, dictate an early conclusion of the deliberations of the session. But there are occasions of public duty when these things which touch us privately seem very small, when the work to be done is so pressing and so fraught with big consequence that we know that we are not at liberty to weigh against it any point of personal sacrifice. We are now in the presence of such an occasion. It is absolutely imperative that we should give the businessmen of the country a banking and currency system by means of which they can make use of the freedom of enterprise and of individual initiative which we are about to bestow upon them. End quote. So here he's referring to the tariff reform, which again had already passed the House, but was still dragging in the Senate. Back to Wilson, quote, We are about to set them free. We must not leave them without the tools of action when they are free. We are about to set them free by removing the trammels of the protective tariff. Now, both the tonic and the discipline of liberty and maturity are to ensue. There will be some readjustments of purpose and point of view. There will follow a period of expansion and new enterprise, freshly conceived. It is for us to determine now whether it should be rapid and facile and of easy accomplishment. This it cannot be unless the resourceful businessmen who are to deal with the new circumstances are to have at hand and ready for use 
the instrumentalities and conveniences of free enterprise, which independent men need when acting on their own initiative. End quote. So again, notice how he's advocating for a massive increase in state control over money and banking, but he's doing it in the language of laissez-faire free market economics. Back to Wilson, quote, It is not enough to strike the shackles from business. The duty of statesmanship is not negative merely. It is constructive also. We must show that we understand what business needs and that we know how to supply it. No man, however casual and superficial his observation of the conditions now prevailing in the country, can fail to see that one of the chief things business needs now and will need increasingly as it gains in scope and vigor in the years immediately ahead of us, is the proper means by which readily to vitalize its credit, corporate and individual, and its originative brains. What will it profit us to be free if we are not to have the best and most accessible instrumentalities of commerce and enterprise? What will it profit us to be quit of one kind of monopoly if we are to remain in the grip of another and more effective kind? How are we to gain and keep the confidence of the business community unless we show that we know how both to aid and to protect it? What shall we say if we make fresh enterprise necessary and also make it very difficult by leaving all else except the tariff just as we found it? The tyrannies of business, big and little, lie within the field of credit. We know that. Shall we not act upon the knowledge? It is perfectly clear that it is our duty to supply the new banking and currency system the country needs, and it will need it immediately more than it has ever needed it before. The only question is, when shall we supply it? Now or later, after the demands shall have become reproaches that we were so dull and so slow? We must act now, at whatever sacrifice to ourselves. It is a duty which the circumstances forbid us to postpone. The principles upon which we should act are also clear. We must have a currency, not rigid as now, but readily, elastically responsive to sound credit, the expanding and contracting credits of everyday transactions, the normal ebb and flow of personal and corporate dealings. Our banking laws must mobilize reserves, must not permit the concentration anywhere in a few hands of the monetary resources of the country or their use for speculative purposes in such volume as to hinder or impede or stand in the way of other, more legitimate, more fruitful uses. And the control of the system of banking and of issue which our new laws are to set up must be public, not private, must be vested in the government itself, so that the banks may be the instruments, not the masters, of business and of individual enterprise and initiative. End quote. Now, a huge amount of what he says the Federal Reserve is supposed to do, or is designed to do or to ensure, is like literally the opposite of what it actually does. But of course, they could have never sold this thing if they had sold it honestly. And I really am not sure how much Wilson actually understood what the Federal Reserve really was there for and who was really going to run it and for what purposes. Like, he might have really, because he was so ignorant of the reality of kind of the money and banking and finance issues, 
I think he might have been a useful idiot or a willing fool on this, and really thought he was doing this thing that was going to rein in the bankers. And perhaps Brandeis and Glass also fall into that category. From what I can tell, I think Brandeis and Glass really believed that they were like anti-corporate progressives and that they were trying to rein in business power. But I think they just had no understanding of things like regulatory capture. And they had no clue that in practice, what would end up happening is that the Fed would be run by and for Wall Street. And in fact, the first in practice head of the Federal Reserve, he didn't have the title of uh, chairman or president of the Fed because that title didn't exist yet, but he was the head of the New York branch of the Fed. And essentially, he kind of ran the show was Benjamin Strong, who was one of J.P. Morgan's right-hand men. And he ran the Federal Reserve for, I forget, over a decade, from its creation until his death in the 1920s. And whose interests was he serving? Primarily the House of Morgan in particular, and big American finance in general. And then also at various points during his tenure, he also worked to essentially subsidize and bail out the British financial elites, too. Anyway, just a few days after Wilson's June 23rd speech to Congress, Carter Glass introduced his newly revised Federal Reserve Act. Populists tried hard to reduce the ability of bankers to influence and control the Fed, but ultimately they failed. And Bryan himself urged his followers to support Wilson and support the Federal Reserve. He kind of said he was disappointed in certain details of it, but he trusted that Wilson was trying to do the right thing. And he also said something about, you know, Wilson's going to push additional antitrust legislation, and that's going to help correct some of the potential things that could go wrong with the banking system, etc. So, if nothing else, Wilson's decision to bring Brian into his administration in order to kind of keep Brian on his side and therefore try to prevent populist Democrats from being disillusioned by some of Wilson's corporatism, that tactic seemed to work, at least in regard to this, because Brian at least went along with the Fed, even though he kind of knew better. You know, at the end of the day, I think of Brian as kind of like a decent, honest leftist of a particular type. So, you know, I wouldn't agree with all of his remedies to America's problems, but I think he's often pretty close in terms of diagnosing the problems. The bill... Glass's Federal Reserve bill was passed overwhelmingly by the House in September, with only three Democrats, all of them Southern populists, voting no, but with 23 Republicans and 10 of the still-existing Progressive Party congressmen voting yes. So it was less down-the-line partisan than the Revenue Act had been. But as with the Revenue Act, the Senate would take a lot longer to pass the bill. In October... Frank Vanderlip, who was then president of the National City Bank of New York, presented an alternative plan to the Senate Banking Committee. Wilson did what he could to fend this off in favor of Carter Glass's bill. Floor debates in the Senate began in early December. Much of the objections to the Fed came from conservative Republicans, actually who characterized the plan as Bryanite extremism. I don't think they called it socialism, but they kind of were sort of making that claim. And I almost wonder if this wasn't cover, you know, if this wasn't to some degree saying, oh no, please don't throw me in the briar patch of this Federal Reserve plan. 
it's too socialist, when perhaps at least some of these conservative Republicans must have understood that even with the modifications from the Aldrich plan that were in Glass's Federal Reserve plan, still there'd be plenty of opportunity for the bankers to run the show. Now, in voting between Glass's Federal Reserve plan versus Vanderlip's plan, the Senate narrowly opted for Glass's plan. And then soon thereafter, in a full vote, the Federal Reserve Act was passed in the Senate by a margin of 54 to 34. Every Democrat, along with six Republicans and the one Progressive Party senator at the time, voted for it. Two days before Christmas on 1913, Woodrow Wilson had a White House signing ceremony at which he signed the bill using three different special gold pens that he then gave as gifts, one to Treasury Secretary McAdoo, one to Carter Glass, and one to Senator Robert Owen, who had been the Federal Reserve's main sponsor in the Senate. Wilson called the Federal Reserve Act, quote, a work which I think will be of lasting benefit to the business of the country, end quote. Well, how's that working out for you? Since 1913, has the business cycle gotten better, or has it actually gotten worse? And how's the Fed done with the value of the dollar? Well, I can tell you that since the Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1913, depending on exactly how you crunch the numbers, the U.S. dollar has lost at least about 97% of its value. Some estimates place it even higher than that. But even taking 97, that means that something that cost $100 in 1913 would cost over $2,700 today for a total cumulative inflation rate of over 2,600%. Oh, and how about reducing the power of big financial institutions over America's economic and political systems? How did the Federal Reserve Act do in regard to that, as its proponents said it was going to rein in the financial sector and rein in Wall Street? How'd that go? In other words, is Wall Street's grip on the American political and economic system less than it was in 1913? Or is it actually much, much, much more? The Federal Reserve makes the business cycle worse. It creates constant inflation. It empowers the financial sector over the rest of the economy even more than it already had been. It bails out major corporations when it decides to usually those with political connections, and it helps to grow the U.S. Leviathan state by doing things like monetizing the U.S. federal government's debt and by artificially holding interest rates down, which, of course, itself tends to lead to inflation and the boom-bust cycle and all that. So, thanks a lot, Thomas Woodrow Wilson. This truly is a work of lasting benefit to the business of the country.